Welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoteric Nerd Podcast, Episode 44. The second interview with Hart Williams about my father's old teacher, Andrew DePassano, a.k.a. Andrea DePassano. But first, I want to introduce a new segment called Cool Last Jesuits I Have Known. We've already mentioned Athanasius Kircher on this program, who in 1652 drew the Tree of Life diagram based on an earlier 1625 version by Philippe de Aquin. So if you, like me, have ever shown the Tree of Life to a rabbi and had them raise an eyebrow wondering why everything was placed that way and why the mother letters weren't simply the three horizontal paths and why the double letters weren't simply the seven vertical paths and the single letters weren't simply the twelve diagonal paths, the obvious choice. And if the rabbi has further raised an eyebrow and said, and why are all these pagan archetypes on here? What are the tarot cards doing on the pads? The pads are all mixed up and there's tarot and pagan. Get this, get this stuff off of my table. Get it off. Then you are already familiar with the Tree of Life of Athanasius Kircher. But we're not here to talk about Athanasius Kircher today. Today I want to talk to you about Pierre Teilhard de Jardin. Is that how it's pronounced? It's, it's, I know it's not Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. I'm trying. I'm trying for French. I'm part French somewhere back there. I took French, believe it or not, at one point. Um, the impetus behind this is uh, I've noticed that I have a new fan in Virginia, who uh, is apparently a creationist. So that's interesting. I um, The the Esoteric Nerd podcast is on the iTunes religion and spirituality category. So it's right next to a lot of preachers and and fundies and, you know, people condemning homosexuality and, and things like that. So that's sort of odd. I want to see if there's maybe another better category I can have it moved over into and if I am able to do that. But anyhow, I wanted to read you an excerpt from an article which appeared in Creation Spirituality Magazine, the summer 1994 issue, by John R. Mabry, a doctoral student at the time at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Progressive Catholics have long cherished Tellier Desjardins and his unique and mystical vision. And for those of us who have only recently discovered the new cosmology, his discovery is as great an epiphany as the encountering of Hildegard, Julian of Norwich, or any of the other mystics who testify to divine imminence. Teilhard was a man possessed of a rare vision who was capable of remythologizing his faith to fit the facts that his scientific studies convinced him of. His was not a god out there who disapproved of humans hypothesizing about or even tampering with the creation. His god 
was an organic entity who lived and breathed the life and breath of the creation, a creator who was simultaneously giving birth to and being born from the magnificent organism of the universe. His views are profoundly creation-centered and are worthy of our present consideration not only because his thought was ahead of his time, but because his predictions, which seem so unlikely in his own time, are coming to pass unnoticed beneath our very noses. Jardin was not a psychologist, nor even a philosopher in the usual sense. He was a priest and mystic, but he was also a scientist, to whom the concept of evolution held as much weight as scripture. Evolution is the basis for Jardin's entire cosmology, not, as the Darwinian evolution would have it, a random product or the survival of the fittest, but an evolution planned and guided by divine agency. As Tellier de Jardin himself writes, quote, The magic word, evolution, which haunted my thoughts like a tune, was to me like unsatisfied hunger, like a promise held out to me, like a summons to be answered. End quote. Jardin's universe is one of continuous and interwoven evolutionary threads incorporating plants, animals, the planet, the cosmos, and, most particular to him, not merely the physical and mental evolution of humankind, but our spiritual ascent as well. Michael Murray, in The Thought of Teilhard de Jardin, writes, In Teilhard's hands, the theory of evolution, far from diminishing man by relating him to the apes, as so many churchmen used to fear, BT's parenthesis and some still do, and parenthesis, actually re-establishes him at the moving apex of time-space, well above the fixed central position which he lost in the Copernican Revolution." End quote. In Teilhard's estimation, humankind is the crowning achievement of the universe because it is in us, and as far as we yet know, only in us, that the creation has become self-aware. Our eyes are the eyes, through which the earth finally beholds her own beauty and, just as importantly, knows that she beholds it. Human beings are not above the creation, but are themselves the creation, that part of the creation that is self-conscious. We have reached the end of the expanding or diversity stage and are now entering into the contracting or unifying stage. At this point, Jardin's theory runs completely counter to Darwin's, in that the success of humanity's evolution in the second stage will not be determined by survival of the fittest, but by our own capacity to converge and unify. The most important initial evolutionary leap of the convergence stage is the formation of what Jardin termed the Noosphere. Its formation, as Michael Murray puts it, begins with a global network of trade, communications, accumulation, and exchange of knowledge, cooperative research, all go into the weaving of the material support for a sphere of collective thought, 
in the field of science alone, no individual knows more than a tiny fraction of the sum of scientific knowledge. And each scientist is dependent not only for his education, but for all his subsequent work on the traditions and resources which are the collective possession of an entire international society composed of the living and the dead, just as Earth once covered itself with a film of interdependent living organisms, which we call the biosphere, so mankind's combined achievements are forming a global network of collective mind. For more about Tellier Desjardins, visit your local library. I'm just fucking with you. You can Google him. T-E-I-L-H-A-R-D. D-E-C-H-A-R-D-I-N. Our guest tonight, some of you might recall, was probably Andrew DePassano's longest-running student. He went through the course several times and uh, would eventually lead the meditations. And so, without further ado, let's get to that interview, shall we? Greetings. Welcome to the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Uh, are we hearing everything fine? Yeah, everything sounds crisp. Good. Good. I, I, uh, I had a headphone. I, I had a, a headset and could not, for the life of me, find it. So I took that as a sign from the cosmos to go get a, a good one. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It sounds real good. Cool. So where did we leave off last time? Mm, I'm not sure. No, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> well, I, I I kind of brushed up on the on the intro that Andrew used to give to the to the classes, which I think oh cool um, might be vaguely viable. Yeah. Do you want to just lead us in that intro? All right, but but let me start out by saying something that that I don't know if you knew this, but okay. Um, this was a completely non-denominational in every possible way path. We had we had the head of the Los Angeles Skeptic Society on the board of directors, and we had uh, alchemists, sannyasins, Christian mystics, you name it. Used to be you couldn't go to the Bodhi tree, pre-Shirley pre McLean, and not find a, a TES person um, at the counter. Hmm. We seem to... Um, but it's because of the fact that this is not a, you know, it's not a religious practice. You don't have to give up anything to do it. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, it, it goes with whatever your, your practice is. If you believe in gods, then that's fine. And if you don't believe in any gods, that's fine too. Yeah. Yeah. You can approach it as uh psychological hypnosis, you know, it's like breath work, you know, you can look at it from a purely rational scientific standpoint of what's going on with the brain. Uh, or you can look at it from a spiritual standpoint, or you can mix the two, find kind of your own, your own uh, relationship with the meaning of spirit. Well, I, I think you, 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 you touched on it a little earlier, which is, Andrew used to note, point out that um, there are two kinds of yogins. There's the, the jhana yogin and the bhakti yogin. 
And mm -hmm. there is neither path is considered superior or inferior, but there it's a matter of temperament. Bhakti yoga is devotional. It it it's it seeks to transcend by leaving the mind behind. Um and many, you know, there are many bhakti schools. But for those of us who aren't bhakti, um there really don't there are not a lot of schools for the jhana yoga. And jhana means this. It, you know, one is the bhakti is the path of devotion, jhana is the path of wisdom. And it's very, very much in keeping with our Western concept of of science and intellect. It's the the, the mind is not left behind. Right. Uh, except when you get to a point where you jump into a pararational whatever state it's explained to the mind in such a way the mind understands it and can accept the fact that i can't come along for the ride sort of like dreams well the thing about it is the great problem in metaphysics is the whole problem of what, what andrew used to call rational feedbacks which is the mind is trying to protect you it's trying to keep you from from taking a safety pin putting a towel around your your, your neck and jumping off the roof. Right. And it does that from morning to night. It never stops until your head hits the pillow. So when you say, oh, I've had this, this out of the body experience, the mind says, oh yes, 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 yes. Right. And picks it apart because that's its job. I mean, to analyze literally means to break apart, to break into smaller and smaller pieces. I always think of dissecting a frog. Yes. Yes. Well, the mind will will take and 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 dissect until there's literally nothing left. It's unfortunate for the frog, though. Well, <laughs> sometimes it, it depends on what kind of life the frog was leading before he got caught. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there are worse things than dying in some kind of frog lives. <laughs> it's true, you know. Could be a frog with particularly bad karma. <laughs> yeah. We have to take these things on a case by case, on a frog by frog. Right, basis. right. Yeah, you can't stereotype. <laughs> um, but you know, Andrew used to say the jhana yogin dissolves the world. Is what you're doing is we are taking the world apart and seeing what makes it tick. And you know, Buddha himself said, Buddhism is nothing but a series of it's a series of techniques, series of practices. And it starts with the question, how can I be happy? That was what Buddha came back from the Bodhi tree with. Um, you know, he didn't speak for several days. And I've always appreciated that because when he finally did speak, they said, why didn't you speak? He said, because to speak would be to lie. Hmm. Well, because um, language depends upon duality and the whole universe. Unity can never be expressed through through duality. Yeah. So, you know, which which helps us all in the sense of we're always worrying about telling the truth. You're always lying. The question is, how much truth can the person you're speaking to bear? Hmm. You know, as as in, very, you wouldn't sit and give very explicit sexual education to a five year old. Right. It would be. It's it's not it's not appropriate. And that was probably legal. Yeah. Well, exactly. But the point is there are, there, there are lots of different situations in which you can tell the person according to the truth they can bear. But the question of, am I lying? Of course you're lying. 
you'll always be lying. Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking you can speak perfect truth and you're fine. Hmm. Do the best you can. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, it, this is a this is a tantric school. It's a school which is based on the notion of first I understand what my problem is before I try to fix it. Um, and one of the great ironies is as you begin to observe yourself, many of the things you thought were your great vices are actually your great virtues, and many of the things that are your great you think are your great virtues aren't virtues at all. That's true. But you know, it, it's like uh, the fuzzy pink cloud. The only part of yourself that you ever regularly see is the fuzzy pink cloud, which is that thing between your eyes, <laughs> which you tune out. <laughs> yeah. That's why we, none of us can stand to see ourselves on, on, on TV, on film, on video. I, I was really surprised this year at how many actors, when they're being reviewed, said, when they're being interviewed, would say, no, I never watch anything that I, any of this, I can't handle it. Yeah. And these are people who are nominated for Oscars. So it's, it's, it's perfectly normal. You know, if, if you get it, it used to be if you got a tape recorder and you put the little tape recorder thing out and put it on play and then you'd roll it back and, and play it back, everybody in the room hearing themselves would go into paroxysms of, <laughs> of embarrassment. Oh, my God, I don't sound like that. <laughs> of course you do, but you don't see yourself. Well, this is about learning to see yourself. Yeah. Um, Speaking and, of um. <laughs> yes, it's the mantra of clarity, you know. <laughs> Did you, um, could I talk you into leading us through that, that introduction that you would lead before? Well, I'm kind of doing it. Oh, oh, I understand. But that's the whole point is the point is, you know, Andrew wanted you to understand and I'm sure his teacher and his teacher's teacher, that um, what this is, is it's a way of, I mean, Andrew used to say, well, what I give you ultimately, I give you sort of a, a, a spiritual Swiss army knife. I give you the techniques and I show you how it works. And then after that, it's up to you to use the, the, the various tools on the, on the knife according to what your life is. We, we do... We meditate, but we're very, you know, the Tibetans were very technocratic people. They did not have the luxury of being able to wander around and eat fruit while wearing a loincloth. Well, many of the great Hindu schools, you know, you could do that. You could literally kind of live off fruit and, and live and, and walk around the forest in a loincloth and, and meditate and, you know, meditate for days if you want. Tibet, it's cold. So... You don't have to meditate for more than five minutes a day. And it's a very effective meditation technique. They stone the body, freeze the emotions, still the mind, and now we go to work. Instead of, you know, if you want to do uh, transcendental meditation or certain kinds of mindfulness, you can spend years just trying to shut the mind up. Well... Tibetans didn't have time to do that. So it's a very tech, it's, it's it, it, there are techniques and you do different things. And the mind comes along with you. We, we break the world down to what we know and we start from there. Instead of beginning with all the assumptions, Andrew used to call it, you know, we swallow frogs. 
they feed us frogs when we're too too young and we have all these frogs and we we can't um, figure out what to do so we just go back and start at point zero which is I have a mind I have a set of emotions and I have a body we know that there's no argument that that's what we have whether we have astral bodies or etheric uh, dimensions and all of that we'll find out later but we know we have a mind a set of emotions and a body and it's very scientific first thing that we learn how to still the body and then we learn how to freeze or calm the emotions depending sometimes you do astral meditations and so you want the emotions calm but not frozen and then we still the mind and now we can do some work and we work on different things i mean that's the swiss army knife it's a progressive work which is it would be once the class got going for about three weeks it would be closed and no new students could come in they'd have to wait to the next class because it you know proceeds from point a to point z and each you know, you start at, with your foundation and you build your cognition. And I remember when I first went, I, I, I was, I, I went totally by accident. And at the time I was, I was thinking I was going to be a science fiction writer. And I went to, I went to see what was going on. It was actually not that far. I could literally walk from my apartment to where it was. And uh, when I first heard this stuff, I thought, oh, well, that's such science fiction. It's just science fiction, astral travel and all of this stuff. Well, turned out it wasn't. And uh, the world changed. And you realize that what the Tibetans did was they approached psychology the way that we have approached physics. And you get results. I mean, Andrew used to say, if it doesn't produce results for you at every step along the way, if it's not its own justification, then we're, we're all wasting our time. Because this is not about belief. It doesn't matter what you believe. Believe anything you want. This is about evidence. If you've had the experience of, of what, what lucid dreaming or astral travel, whichever you want to call it, if you've had the experience of that autonomy in the dream state, then no one can, no one can argue you out of it. Right. But if you have not, all of the discussion in the world will not get you there. This is, you know, gnosis, direct knowledge, experience. Once you've experienced it and you know it's real, then it's yours. And your mind can actually use it in its, you know, planning and the way that it looks at the world. It becomes a legitimate thing and not just another weird story for Fate magazine. Yeah. Because if we don't understand, Andrew used to always say, if without understanding, your leap of consciousness will be lost. Almost everyone you'll ever talk to has had a, a, a profound a metaphysical religious alternate, whatever you want to call it, experience. Some very profound experience of what's something on the other side of the veil. And they have mostly don't know what to do with it. Or, but they'll tell the story, you know, late at night, maybe in, in, a, in the hunting lodge, you know, after, after the kids have gone to bed or whatever. 
they'll have had this experience, but it will not have, have helped them in any way because they don't understand what to do with it. Right. As we, we, we want to talk about telepathy. We want to talk about lucid dreaming. We want about for what about, you know, being able to contact loved ones who have departed or loved ones who are on the other side of the world. Um, if we have experienced that and we know the tech and we have, ex and as a repeatable, as a repeatable event, then it's a reality. It's part of our world. And we take it for granted in the same way that we take being able to see the weather satellite um, for granted. And yet both of them profoundly change the way that we see the world. Right. So what I, what I, I started out as a science fiction writer who was coming to see all these weird little, you know, philosophy, whatever it is. And I ended up last summer going to the world science fiction convention as a, uh, as a person who's practiced this uh, particular path for more than 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I found that I just couldn't think like them. It was like mm -hmm. most of the, most of the CDs that they saw sort of in cartoon form in, in, in the books were things that were actual possibilities of experience. You know, this is, is a, a profoundly magical and amazing world. And instead of running away from it in books, the closer we look at it, the more incredible it becomes. Um, and Andrew used to always say something that I really enjoyed, which was that, that, that drew me to me instantly. He said, you know, we, we asked for a donation to keep the temple going, but no serious, sincere seeker will ever be turned away. which was, uh, well, it was the rule and, 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 and the, the board of directors used to fight about it every, every, every <laughs> year at the, at the board of directors meeting. Yeah, um, you got to turn some people away. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, not, not that. It was just finances. It's like, you know, right, we, right. we got to charge for this and yeah. Or don't, you know. don't let word get out that you let people, you know, well, ironically, the Tibetans have no problem themselves. You don't put it in this. the ad, you know, it's $25 or free, you know, right. whatever you can afford. Yeah. Well, well, we call it now sliding <laughs> scale. Right. You see that all over. Well, I don't know where you, I'm in a college town and you see sliding scale events all over the place. Hmm. Yeah. Just give us your uh, last year's tax report and we'll tell you how much the uh, ride is going to be. No, that's that's to uh, that's that's to that's to adopt a, a stray cat. Ah, seriously, my my cat died a few years ago, and we wanted to to get another cat, and we we wanted to get a, a rescue rather than you know go to a. Um, and we went out to the the, the humane, and they gave us a four page thing including them having the right at any time to hold a surprise inspection to see how you're treating the animal. Hmm. And it was like, okay, I, wow. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I get to pick up my cat at 3 p.m. She just had a mastectomy. Ouch, she, yes. She had cancer, so it's good. It'll be good to have her back. I've been worried about her. It's been, I've been preoccupied with it. So. Well. They, they, they're, they're important. Yeah. They familiar. Very important in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. It's fascinating to reflect on like, what, what are they to us? What are we to them? What's with this? 
relationship we have with <laughs> with cats. And there's that th- those comics that go around about how, you know, on one hand, there's how we treat cows and chickens and pigs. And then on the other hand, there's how we treat cats and dogs, how different it is. Well, you know, cats are... Dogs are creatures of uh, of our our hunter gathering our, our 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 tribal past, right? But cats are are animals of civilization. Hmm. <clears throat> they first come to us when we have granaries, because the granaries attack attract of vermin, and the cats feed off the vermin. Oh. So cats cats are our creature have been with us since the beginning of civilization. But dogs have been with us since the beginning since, of fire. <laughs> yeah. Or before we don't know. Yeah, it maybe. Yeah, wow. It was one of those tricks that uh, dog society, and, and and human society. That's why uh, dogs are more like people. I mean, well, ca- cats are like people in in when people are independent and rebellious, <laughs> but dogs can fall in line. <laughs> they well, get look with at the what program. happens with our animals, though. <laughs> Over the course of their lives, they develop more human interests than their they have dog or cat interests. Right. And it has been a kind of apprenticeship into the species. You know, if reincarnation is real or souls are real hmm. or whatever, the question is, yeah, where are all the new point. ones coming from? Yeah. I mean, twins, one in 17, and that, that, that works slowly. But, um, hmm. you know, there's, there, there's an awful lot of cats uh, operating actual, I mean, caterpillar tractors and Awful lot of dogs, ex-dogs doing security guard work. I have a feeling humans go back and forth sometimes and, uh, you know, be a cat in between. Actually, um, we don't regress. We don't regress. And it it has to do with hands. Once you've had hands, you'll never go back to not having hands. Hmm. And if you'll watch, if you watch your dog or your cat, they're absolutely fascinated with your hands. Because, you know, the hands can do these magical things that their paws cannot. And many, many dogs and cats, you'll notice, will will learn how to flush a toilet or open a door or, you know, do an almost human manipulation, uh, undo a lock. Mm -hmm. Um, But it it has to do with, as they live with us, their interests become, our interests become their interests. And in the wild, you can find almost no dogs that have a taste for ice cream. Hmm. But on your block, you can probably find three. No, we 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 have a very into. I mean, the 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 thing that I thought that is the least talked about, and yet probably the most profound thing that has come to me in this work is the understanding: we're part of the world. We're we're totally of this planet. We're not. We're not separate. We're not alien creatures against a hostile universe. We're literally part of the desire of the planet. Maybe just maybe the planet just wanted to touch the moon. Maybe that was all. Hmm. But we come from the desire of the planet, not, um, you know, we're not we're not at war with it. You know, we 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 replace the earth, air, fire, and water in our bodies constantly. So much so that you kind of start, if you look at the process, you kind of wonder, well, what is your body if every 120 days everything has been swapped out? Where the heck did you go? Yeah, and all this uh, cosmic dust that uh, that we're made of was once flaming hydrogen. That was us. I mean, we right. could say we were, you know, that star. 
or that or that bottle or that that Perrier that you're drinking was once peed by a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, when I'm when I'm teaching yoga, I always talk about you're breathing the blue sky. Mm-hmm. We are, you know, when one of the very first things that Andrew used to say was, you know, one of the exercises was go out and say, look at things and go, Tatvamasi, I am that, I am that. This whole world, you know, I'm, I'm, what I am it, as as a drop is part of the ocean, and the whole trick is that. The Tibetans came up with a very practical, step-by-step way of getting a, a, a getting a grip on your life. Basically, you know, I was reading one of one of the one of the pieces that was. He said, uh, "You know, this is a way of of getting the clarity to understand what you're where you're at, and then the tools." in order to understand how to now create the future that you want to create. Because we, we know that there are very profound mysteries about ourselves. You know, we, we can't understand how it is that we're a creature that can at the same time crave pizza and dieting. How we can, I want to, I've got to have a pizza. I've got to have a pizza. I have to lose weight. I have to lose weight. At the same moment, how is this possible? We're filled with these contradictory urges, and we don't know what to do with them. And at the same time, we don't, you know, I have a real problem with modern psychology, always have, just because of the fact that there is no commonly accepted paradigm for consciousness. Hmm. I mean, if, if astronomy was that way, you know, the last time astronomy was that way was during the way the days of the pre-Socratics. You know, Heraclitus thought that they were bundles of swamp gas that, that lifted up and then caught fire. And other people thought they were fireflies and other people thought they were holes in this big dome, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, we now have a, we have a kind of a commonly accepted view of, of the cosmos, which is much bigger than that, by the way. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people won't even look at what you're pointing at when you say consciousness. I mean, pe- by pe- by that, I mean people who are um, strictly atheistic, science-minded, reason-minded, and you say, well, how do you explain you? How do you explain me? And then they say, you're just playing with words. They won't even look at what you're saying. Well, that's, that's, that's a very, very big problem, and it reminds me. You know, Stanley Kubrick made A Clockwork Orange because he happened to pick up a copy of B.F. Skinner's Beyond Freedom and Dignity, at a, and a, you know, an airport uh, books shop. Mm-hmm. And he read it, you know, on the plane. And it so offended him that he went out and looked for something and made a clockwork orange for that reason. But the point is, modern science has been, psychology has been taken over by the rat psychologists because you can get numbers. Mm-hmm. And it's now being taken over by MRI people because they can show the brain working. And there's a very dangerous kind of materialism involved in that. The idea that you can explain consciousness just as a series of chemical reactions. And, well, the point is, it may be justified, it may not be, but without proof, you don't simply assume that. And that's one of the things that's happening, is that 
the notion of consciousness as somehow separate or transcendent is vanishing and it's simply becoming just a kind of a mundane reflex like you know touching the electrode to that that frog you're dissecting's uh uh nerve so that the leg kicks right you know i'm very personally i'm very fond of the idea of the atman the great self of the universe that you know when these bodies come together as a fish or a man then it uh is temporarily you know uh an individual separate from the rest and maybe even on an incarnation cycle for a long time coming like you said as a drop from the ocean and then eventually returning to it but yet never losing anything worth keeping never um you know everything's just continually changing and and we're all it and that's um that's that's what works for me <laughs> I don't know, you know, well, I, but be that's not about, a commonly uh, accepted definition. Well, be careful about about veering into everything is everything, because uh, there are there are gradations of things. I don't know. There, I think I there I, are better things and there are worse <laughs> things. And let me there, there is an ast there is an ecology to the other worlds, just as there is an ecology to our world. Right. There's kind of there's dark things and there's light things. Yeah, there's, and there's ways you can be rude that you don't know that you could be rude. There's neighborhoods you don't necessarily want to wander into, being loud, even in this world. Well, also there are there are also flows from other places, which uh, we don't fully understand, nor is it necessary to. But um, I'm 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 convinced that there's a lot of people. A lot of a minority, but a, no, a, a number of people that this is, you know, this is their, for the first time that consciousness has been to this planet and it comes from a different kind of place. Hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know how that works. I, I, I never took any of your ranches, so I can't tell you. <laughs> but the point is that whatever we believe is not really is, you know, this is a very practical school in that sense it's like you can that's why i say i'm fond of the idea i'm not really you know, into the word believe but i'm fond of the idea it's the one that is least depressing <laughs> well the point is this as long as we are stuck in the idea of time and space we're kind of stuck right um you know at a, at a certain level everything has already happened it's all kind of known. And for us to be here, we sort of have to pretend that we've forgotten that. And then it's exciting. Yeah. It's kind of like watching a football game from, you know, a great football game from 2012 that's on ESPN Classic that you never heard of or saw. You don't remember and you don't know. So it's exciting because you don't know how it's going to turn out. Right. But if you happen to know exactly how it turns out, then it's probably not that interesting. <laughs> well, the point is in this this level of consciousness we are aware of the things we're aware of which is when you think about it totally uh um immensely greater than the world that even our grandparents lived in you go back 150 years and no human on the planet ever traveled 60 miles an hour unless they were you know they hit a rock at the bottom hmm. um you know, I, I was noticing we were, we were flying this summer and, and, and I happened to, to, to notice and they had the, we were doing Mach point, what, point eight, point eight five Mach. And I was going, okay, almost, you know, 85% the speed of sound. 
and we're eight miles up in the air, and you can see the curvature of the Earth. And if uh, if you go back 150 years, nobody could have could could they would have thought you're insane because there's no way you could know that. Hmm. No way, you know that's that's impossible. Plus. Every day I can get up and I look at the, at and see literally what what's going on with all the cloud systems in my hemisphere and see their movement for the last 12 hours. That absolutely you know, remember Eisenhower you know had to had to bet he, they had no idea whether or not the storms were going to roll in and and destroy their nor- their D-Day invasion or not. They had a bet on the weather. Nobody knew anything about the weather, and now we, we take it for granted that, you know, we have those satellites up there, and everything that you hear about the weather, by the way, comes directly from the National Weather Service. They just, you know, then they hire people to do fancy weather maps and stuff, but everybody gets the same free feed, and it's changed our lives. You, 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 you're going to go on vacation. You're going to say, say you wanted to, you're in, you're in LA and you're going to go to, uh, you're going to go to Colorado. You're going to look and see what the weather is going to be. So you don't get caught in a blizzard in the mountains. Right. Oh, 50 years ago, a hundred years ago. No, just 50 years ago. That was kind of right on the edge of unthinkable. We were just getting satellites up in the mid sixties. Um, you know, television, internet, television. I, I remember, I remember when computers first showed up cause I showed up with televisions and the idea that I could actually get inside the television and move something around was amazing. Just, <laughs> or, or what we do now, a podcast, a podcast, right. nobody had the, you know, only a few you know, radio stations could do this and you had to be licensed by the FCC. Didn't Andrew have uh, a public access show? A too. He did a radio show out of Santa Barbara or Ventura. I wonder if we can and, get a hold of those recordings. Well, it depends on, I'm sure you can. It just depends on whatever happened to all the temple stuff. I don't know. You know what I mean? Because art you know, I mean, taped Andrew every time, every show. I mean, sorry, every class for for several years was yeah. taped, and we had the tape. And uh, Tony had a bunch of tapes, which um, are at Santa UC UCAL Santa Barbara in the Tony Leitner collection. Um, and oh. I I know there was just a huge library of tapes, and I was I, I remember sitting at the time noticing that. Basically, what the Roshnishis had built this whole publishing empire simply by transcribing his talks. Hmm. And they had 38 books. Um, and it was just, you know, his talks, and they transcribed them, kind of put them, plop them together, and another book. Boom, was that the, book, uh, the city up in Oregon? Oh, um, Rajneesh something? Osho, yes. It became Osho. At the time, it was Rajneesh. We had many sannyasin. There was a fairly active sannyas community in. Uh, in in los angeles and many of them uh used to come to the temple hmm. well because you know rush uh, osho was a was a a very syncretist he he was he took stuff from lots of different traditions mm-hmm. um hold on just a second oh, there you go um 
And I remember when everybody left to come up to Big Muddy, to to, to the big R- Roshnish city or whatever it was called. Roshnishboro, I believe. Yes. And then, then, uh, and then it, the, the whole mess that happened. And yeah. then now in the aftermath, it's occasionally mentioned on the news up here, but um, the story that they tell and the story that I know from, turns out many of those, many of those people, I, I ran into the refugees from all of that, uh, many of them, and relocated in Santa Fe. And I met them in the early 90s and got them to talk about their experiences and, well, um, quite different stories. Yeah, there's a, I, I recommend that there's a 99% Invisible, it's another podcast, um, has an episode called, called Rajneesh Borough or Rajneeshville or whatever it is, you can find it on there. They go into it quite a bit, and there's a lot of recordings, and they go into all the specifics. But it kind oh, of blew Rancho, my mind. Rancho Rajneesh. Oh, yeah? That was one of them, I guess. There's another. There were two cities. There was They had taken over. There was one they had built, and they were trying to take over the one next to it. I've actually been there. Poisoned 900 people, and then, and then Osho said that he had taken a vow of silence and he didn't know anything about it and then they kicked him out of the country and then for some reason he's quoted right alongside everyone else and i'm like wow wow okay that's weird and well, he, I, what, he seems to contradict everyone else too so well, basically, like i always kind of raise an eyebrow when i see his quotes yeah. well basically <laughs> to what be happened, honest. <laughs> I've, I've always considered it, it's it's a profound failure of governance hmm. and i mean one of the things you know and i i remember the castellani letters which got into that which has to do with, okay, you've become enlightened. Hooray for you. Right. Now, how are you going to come back down to the valley and deal with the fact that people still have to have plumbing? People still have to have food. We have to have running water. We have to have police. We have to have firemen. All of these things which human society needs, oh, great enlightened one, how do we plug back in? Right. Well, what happens is, they have this great problem of governance. They are building literally a city. I've been there. I've been there. I was there before it was transferred to the, the Christian um, uh, youth camp thing when it was just kind of abandoned. It, it basically, it looked like a very nice junior college out in the middle of nowhere. And think- I've, you know, look, I've, I've heard lots. I've, I've, one of the uh, book projects I've wanted to do for a long time is go and, and, and get there. I know a lot of people who, know some things about it, and I'd like to pull that together and write a much more accurate story of what happened. Because from the moment that they got there, there were shots being fired across that fence. And it basically just, it snowballed, and uh, Ma Anand Sheila was nuts. I mean, she tried to, you know, um, classic case of somebody, you know, power corrupting, absolutely, because she was given total power. Roshnish didn't want to handle it. Evidently, he had serious back pain and troubles. And uh, was on all kinds of painkillers and gave all the power over to her. And she went crazy behind it, which is not the first time in human history this has happened. It's just we forget, even though we're all cool and all of that, we still have to have the, the mechanics of civilization, the mechanics of society. And I think that is it's a great failure of governance. The message was fine. The governance was dreadful. And it ended up becoming this horrible, horrible mess. But I still have no problem with the teachings as a way of getting out. They 
say nothing about, that's what I've taken from it ever since, is we have to also ask ourselves the question, how do I apply my enlightenment? Because if you'll, you, you notice in, in the seeker community, people tend to withdraw. And they withdraw from things so that they can, you know, so they can find their peace, find their own separate way, find their, their mountain. But then they have to re, we have to bring this back. We have to bring it back down from the valley so that, you know, that stuff doesn't happen. Because if, it, you know, the same thing happened at Rajneesh Puram or Rancho Rajneesh in some ways that, that happened in Rwanda. The same mechanisms took over, even though the, the death counts and, and all the rest of that were different. And right. so we've got to ask ourselves, you know, with all our enlightenment, how do we stop this from handling happening rather than we should be able to stop it in Rwanda, not have it at, at a at a at a at a uh, religious commune. You know, at that point, you say, what good did it do them? You know, I come from, a, this is a very practical school, and we always ask ourselves, you know, is there, Andrew used to say this, you know, you could, he could give you the meditation, and if you went and worked for seven to 12 years on it, you could levitate. But then he'd say, but it's only $98 to set to fly to San Francisco round trip. <laughs> so what's the point? <coughs> You can float six inches off the ground. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it seems to me, and I don't know, I, uh, the, the whole structure of having, whether it be a city or, or, or a study group where it's a closed group, it, it has, I mean, there's certain benefits that come from that. Um, but I think that maybe moving forward and maybe with the, the opening of the, what Tellier Desjardins termed the nuosphere or uh, the uh, collective knowledge, the opening of collective knowledge to the world, for example, through podcasts and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the path of the solo practitioner is the one that resonates more with the age of mankind or the age of Aquarius, um, where, in other words, people are learning from different sources, but not necessarily drinking the Kool-Aid. And so... Well, with, yeah, with that... I, I understand the sync, this idea that um, that we can all be freelancers and we can just we, we pick here and pick there. And I, I, I mean, if I had a quarter for or every time I, I, I've right. heard somebody say, oh, well, I'm my own teacher. I you know do this. Um, or I have many teachers, perhaps, rather how about, than how about I'm, this? I'm a, when you, I'm you a come to of my a master certain moment so -and -so. when there are certain kinds of practices that can only be given to you by someone who knows how to do them, that you need a coach um, in the same way that it's really useful to have a gymnastics coach and not try to do gymnastics all on your own mm -hmm. in case you, you know, manage to, 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 to break your spine. Um, these schools do exist and they have their value because of the fact that they, um, they are the result. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, there's there, there, many the schools that work and, you know, there are as many paths as there are practitioners, but schools that work um, give you the opportunity to truly, you know, do some real change and some real work rather than getting caught in church politics or 
um, arguments about practice, or um, then everybody's upset with each other and you have a schism. This is normal in, in these, these, these endeavors. I'm just wondering but, how, how deep can we get into um, Andrew's teachings on a podcast? I mean, okay. how deep are you willing to go? Because I think most of what we've talked about so far we covered in the first episode. Mm-hmm. So you, you were talking about wanting to go a layer well, deeper I can, with let each me, episode. Let me, let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's start with, um, Andrew would always give this to start with, the first meditation. Um, when you eat, recognize that a life has been taken for yours to continue. Um, it doesn't matter what what order the life is. In other words, if you if you don't Planter eat anything with a face or right, right, or it doesn't have a face, it's still a life has been sacrificed on your behalf. Yeah, and we just want one thing, which is, um, before you eat, just say you know, just be grateful that a life has been given so that mine can continue, and maybe mine could. You know, hopefully mine will be worthy of that sacrifice. And then you say, and, and if you can, this is a good thing to start. If you can, try to chew each bite 20 times. Mm. Okay, that's, that's the first little technique. Now, there's one other one, which is when you're in the shower or when you take a bath. Understand that you're... 86% water. You and the water are the same. Sister water. Give me your strength. Your purity. Water is never mingled. You can mix it with anything and it's still water. And your constancy. One drop of water applied eventually can, can, can erode an entire mountain to the ground. And as you do your shower, do that. You know, just be sister water. I am you. Me. And just those two things. When you, you know, grateful for your eating and and uh, yeah. be aware of the water. And I'll like, you know, and try to chew your food 20 times. But uh, you know, I, I, I will explain that in future, what that does. But it's certainly, there's certainly nothing well, it wrong. It certainly increases the surface area of the food, makes it easier to digest, if nothing else. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's a reason for this. But mm -hmm. um, just, you know, try to, try to, try to, they're just those two little things. And uh, I guess we can start, well, this is, I can start with the, the easy stuff for sure. And yeah, it's thank like you. This. Let us start with zero. We have a body, we have a set of emotions, we have a mind. Now, what we need to understand is how it is that our world we put is put together. And we begin with, we live on a stage. The world that we perceive, and this is the thing that modern psychology tends to fall into with the materialism. You know, the chemicals, and I can see the brain functioning. Mm -hmm. We... What we see is a very simplified simulation of the actual reality that we are experiencing. 
We cannot see cosmic rays. Sometimes you can see them when you're going to sleep at night. All they are is stripped off um, hydrogen nuclei traveling at almost the speed of light. And when they hit one of the neurons in your brain, there's a little a little explosion and you'll see it like a little white flash of light. Hmm. We all do. Um, cosmic rays are bombarding us constantly. We, we're not aware of them. Um, you know, we know about we know about ultraviolet. We know about infrared. And yet we cannot perceive them directly. There's music floating through the room right now. And if we have an instrument called a radio, we can we can hear it. There's there's pictures floating through the room right now. And we well, there's a whole huge chunk of reality that's like that. And we need to understand that we create our reality with five sampling. We have five sampling devices that take five different samples from the electromagnetic spectrum. We have, we get light, which is we get from our eyes. We sample sound, which is, oh, at such a totally different level of, of speed than, than light. You know, the frequency of light is up in the millions. And then the frequency of, of sound, we can hear from 20 to 20,000 hertz or vibrations per second. I think it's about 44 octaves or 46 octaves or no, less 20, or something like that. Yeah. 20, 20 to 20,000 K is, is, is the generally accepted stereo um, area of human sound. We can right. hear a little above, a little below, but we can't hear those the dog whistles. Every octave doubles it, so it ends up being about 46 to get up to light from, uh, for example, uh, red light up to middle C. Yeah, well, guess what? We miss everything almost all of that yeah and it's not practically useful for us okay, so well, it's, uh, to survive yeah well it's not a question of that it's simply that we have we've developed the best capacity that we can but we need to understand where our limitations are where our blindnesses are to understand why um it's important for us to get out be behind the stage behind the curtain and see what's on the other side well we have, you know, we have the five we have the five sampling devices. Then we have we have smell and taste, which are related but not the same. Which is chemical sampling, which is at a lower vibration, still. And then we finally have touch, which which we can touch things if they're not too hot, not too cold, or moving too slow or too fast. And with those five, this is what's interesting. The way that we knit our world together is through cause and effect. And that's the big job that if you've ever seen a baby, you know, figuring out the world, the, very, the early thing that they're doing is cause and effect, cause and effect. I see my hand and I see the spoon and can I, how do I make my hand grab the spoon? And right. it is a, it's a feedback mechanism. But for instance, these are each discrete. One of my favorite memories of, I was sitting in uh, biology class, interestingly enough, in Kansas and far away out on the football field, the cheerleaders were practicing. And the biology we were doing at the time was pretty boring. So I'm staring out the window and I noticed that they would have their arms straight out and then they would bring them in and clap twice and then stick their arms straight out twice for the cheer that they were doing, except the distance between where they were and where I was sitting was such 
that the delay was exactly perfect. When they put their hands out, you'd hear the clap. And then when they clapped, you wouldn't hear anything. Hmm. Because of the differential between speed of light and speed of sound. Right. Well, the point was that what I see and what I hear are discrete. The only place that we've connected them is in our head. Same thing as if I'm holding a little cube about, oh, half an inch by half an inch by half an inch, and it's white. Well, just looking at it without using any other senses, you don't know if that's a cube of marble, it's a sugar cube, if it's maybe a cube of salt, a cube of chalk. You don't know what it is. Because you have to, you know, feel it, maybe taste it, maybe, you know, if you taste it, it's, oh, sugar, no problem. Or it's marble, for that matter. Um, we've done the same thing, and we have knitted our world together. I was talking to my wife about this. I said, you know, if, 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 if I ever taught a metaphysical class, I would always wonder why people who are in the movies um, don't get it much quicker than everybody else. Because film is a soundtrack and a picture track. And by manipulating the soundtrack, you can make the pictures seem to do different things than they do. And I think it's because all, you know, everybody's all stressed out and the agent's always breathing down your neck and even the makeup person's grouchy. You know, it's it's like they're in a game within a game, like that insurrection, a dream within a dream within a dream. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm just talking about the, the film. Any film itself is pictures and sound. Right. Now, I can sit there and I take a swing at you. You're actually a foot away, but since the camera is, is collapsing the depth of field and you react, that's called acting, um, then the Foley person on the soundtrack puts the sound of somebody punching a slab of beef in and we put the sound and the image together and it's, oh, look at him, punch that guy. It's all fake. We know that. But we have put our world together the same way. Only it's not just the sound and the picture, but also the smell and the touch and the taste. Right. And we've used these to create a world. And sometimes this world gives us false, false positives. Um, I, I once I remember this happening. It's happened a couple of times. Um, I walked into a room. I knew that the, the light bulb had burned out. But, you know, I it. I knew it intellectually, but my body didn't know it. So I walked in and I flipped the switch and a dog barked twice. So I immediately tried to do it again. Because instantaneously, the mind had taken the, the cause, me flipping the switch, and the effect, the dog barking, and linked them. Right. Because that's how we construct our world. And now we... we, we the mind, which is this very nice computer, it doesn't care what it's counting. It could be counting dead babies or it could be counting candy canes. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't put quality to things. It's just, it's cold like mathematics. Um, the computer determines what, using this sensory input what things are real. And it uses four, four pre-existing filters, which is time, space, cause, and effect. Um... You know, does it exist? Does it have a duration? Does it exist in time? Does it occupy space? Is there a cause for it? And does it produce an effect? And if it doesn't fit these 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 filters, the mind says, "Well, that's nice. It's abstract." There's a unicorn. A unicorn um, fulfills some, but not all of those conditions. And so we use 
that the four filters and the five senses to construct this world that we perceive. And it is very difficult for us to constantly remember this world that I see is not the world. It's a kind of a, a simulation of the world. For instance, we know, there's no question, when we look at the world, the image we see is upside down. The brain turns it back upside down again, so it's right side up. But the image that goes on the back of our retina is upside down. You see what I'm saying? Right. The, we have constructed this world. You know, I always used to call this the possibility of magic, which is we have accepted, especially in the modern sort of scientific atheist community, mindlessly, without thinking about it, we've accepted that this five, this pentasensorial illusion is reality. And it's the only reality, even though we know intellectually it's not. You see what I'm saying? It could not be. Yeah. I think with multidimensional theory and things like that, people are starting to open up to other possibilities or the mind is starting to at least grasp at, you know, the, well, the, uh, that idea. It's, it's a difference between understanding it, thinking it intellectually and actually being aware of it in terms of functioning. Right. You know, it's one thing that you, you can, as I said, I intellectually knew in my head that the light in that room had burned out. But when I walked in and flipped on the switch, and instead of the cause and effect that I expected, which is I flipped the switch, light goes on, I got, I flipped the switch and the dog barks. Immediately, my mind says, oh my God, I've got to check that. So through words, we can only communicate so much. So if I say... Well, please, let's I, not get into Wittgenstein. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I took I'm, philosophy in college and the philosophy of language. And it's like, we, we do the best we can. To speak is to lie. And after that, you okay. know, let's... We're, we're doing the best we can. Yeah. No, it's, it's, we need to understand, you know, first and foremost, that we have constructed this world. And that while this world is very useful simulation. If I can interrupt just for a minute. Yeah. So implied in all this is mm. that Andrew had been, been to the other places and seen the other things beyond the constructed world. And he could help the student to do the same. Yeah. So, okay. So are there steps? I mean, we've got the... Well, this I think is the first step. The, the first okay. step is we understand I have a body, I have a set of emotions, and I have a mind. Okay. And now I have used this, the body um, and the mind to create this stage that I'm acting out my life on. Right. And that's fine, but instead of thinking... Nothing that I don't perceive is real. Understand, there's a whole lot I perceive I don't perceive that is real. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do through what we do through experimentation and through experience is to get on the other side of that veil and look at some of those important, you know, for instance, what happens when I die? That's the simple, single most important question that we have religious experience in order to answer. Right. If we can go and see where that is and understand it, then suddenly death is not a problem anymore. Until we do, it is the great moral terror of our lives and the universe. Um, you know, I, I've, I've, a lot of people have, have passed in my life lately, and it's, it's, 
I'm at peace with the process and everything that's happened, but having to deal with the reactions of all the people who have are not at peace with it has been very stressful. So right, but it helps is... to remember that <clears throat> the ones who lament and cry will one day be forgotten as well. I feel, well, but their pain <laughs> is real. The point is, but if the pain yeah, is it's real caused, in the moment, yeah. But if the pain is caused by ignorance that could be alleviated and therefore the pain not the pain dissolved, right. then it, it strikes me as, as, as a, um, a decent thing, a kind thing to alleviate that pain. Because right. most of the pain that people feel about the passing of loved ones is because they have absolutely no idea what's going on. And in point of fact, that pain tends to, is, it isn't helpful to the loved one either. They right. feel it very intensely. You see what I'm saying? Somebody right. dies and you sit there and you're ah, it's all this. And that person, if there's, you know, that, if that consciousness and, and let's just pretend this is science fiction, because until you've proved it, it's not real. But suppose that 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 consciousness is still around. They receive that that emotion only it's not filtered by a body anymore. And it's like being under, a you know, being in a fire hose, only it's shooting acid. Right. Well, you don't want to do that to somebody you care about. If you don't know, you very easily can. Yeah. I mean, the trick is, um, as we know more about the world, we deal with the world in a, in a far less destruct. We, we have less of a karma footprint. Yeah. We, uh, you know, Andrew used to say, you know, well, um, we'll get to that at some other point. Karma is not one of the, um, it's 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 not important at this point. What's important is to just understand this is who we are, and this is how we've constructed our world. And I think that that's probably enough for the first shot. Okay. We, do you do you want to? Oh, I'm sorry. What were you saying? Um. I I mean I'm gonna have I, to wrap no, it up I think, pretty soon. I th I think the second one we can we can we can do sort of the the first meditation. It's, okay. It's, that sounds know, good. Yeah, I look forward to that. But but the, for the first for the first shot, I mean, it, it, you know, this is this is who we are, and this is how we've constructed our world. And now that we understand that, and we can kind of take a moment to sort of let that sink in, because it really is, you know, we all fall back into believing that what I'm seeing is just this, and that's all there is. We need to understand that's a, that's that's ridiculous. We see very remember just the space between middle C and light. How much we miss. Right. Well, think how much more space there is that we're also missing. And some of that is the, you know, um, the, the, old, they're the old saying, you know, somewhere there's a, they're having a meeting about your fate to decide your fate and you weren't invited. Hmm. Well, some of the most important things having to do with your life are happening in places that right now you don't see. So it, it, it would be a good thing to see them. That twelfth house. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've just I've I've been just going through all kinds of twelfth house issues lately because all my big planets have just moved through it. Oh man. Well, and we're in Pisces now, so it's appropriate. <laughs> well, that's true. But I've I've always um, you know, two of my best friends were Pisces, so I, this is always kind of a. I my dad, my dad, my sister, and my ex cult leader were all Pisces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Speaking of which, tomorrow's my dad's birthday, or in two days. It's hard to tell because he was born in Shanghai, so there's the international date line and mm. all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of those. It's uh, it's useful for genealogies, but you know, yeah. it doesn't matter because you're not going to send a cake either way. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. I'm sincerely grateful that you're sharing Andrew's teachings with us because, you know, I got what I got from my dad when I was young. And so I appreciate that uh, you're willing to come on here and share this with us. And I look forward to our next conversation. All right. Well, thank you, Edward. It's good to speak with you. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Namaste. Namaste. Bye-bye. Thank you, Hart Williams, for joining us on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast tonight. Thank you also to the monks on Mount Khoisan, who are singing in the background right now. Thank you to Trinitas for the background to the title of the new segment, Cool Ass Jesuits I Have Known. Also, thank you to John Michael Talbot for the track We Are One Body. Thank you also to Jonathan Goldman for the track Holy Honey. By the way, Tellier Desjardins also coined the term cyber. Apparently he was in China at around the same time as my grandpa. By the way, the image attached to this episode is the face of Tellier Desjardins and in the background is some of the artwork of Andre de Passano. To my new fan in Virginia, in response to the meme you reposted, we're not descended from monkeys. We share a common ancestor with them. If your science teacher really couldn't answer that, well, he should be fired. Glad to have you as a listener of the podcast. Do share it with your friends. Thank you all for tuning in. Good night.